and what has had kind of a pivotal impact on my life is, is taking chances uh, and position yourself in a way where people want to take chances on you. you know, whether that's, you know, friends that end up helping you build companies or investors that invest in them or customers trying your minimal viable product. <laughs> yeah. Position yourself in a way where, where people want to take that chance. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back. Championship Leadership Podcast. We got Daniel Itzkowski here out of uh, San Francisco, California. Uh, appreciate you being here, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Nate. It's really yeah. good to be here. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Uh, so Championship Leadership is the name of the podcast. What what comes to mind for you? What, is, what does that mean to you when you hear that? Championship Leadership, you know, that's a that's a pretty big kind of topic. Um, for me, uh, the foundation of leadership is really self-improvement. I think mm -hmm. it's a constantly changing environment. And uh, I think a true leader is always constantly looking to better themselves and, and learn uh, how to inspire and invigorate people. Uh, but, but of course, that's a, that's a really big topic. But for me, yeah. it's about self-improvement. Self-improvement. I love it. Yeah, I, um, I would agree. I think, you know, I like to say, to, you know, to lead, to lead others, you got to lead yourself first. Right. So I think that that's where that self-improvement comes big time. Be the example. Um, where's that, where does that come from for you? Like why, why is that top of mind? Why, why is that kind of the first thing you think of when you hear that championship leadership? I, you know, I guess, I guess a lot of it for me is because um, just my personal ethos. I, I try to, my, my goal is I don't have these like massive goals, uh, necessarily. I, I try not to set too strict expectations of, of myself or others, but I do have one overarching goal, which is I want every single subsequent day to be just a little bit better than the last. And I want to be a little bit better than the last. And, and this is kind of the, the finance, investing mind uh i always think of uh compound interest as a good kind of uh proxy for that uh even if you improve just a small little bit on a daily basis that compounds over time uh, yeah yeah good yeah absolutely what um why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about your your story and and you know, how you've gotten to where you are. I know current project and company uh, called Side Pocket, but I know we've talked a little bit and and uh, your story starts a little bit before that, obviously. So yeah, share share with us uh, for the listeners that aren't, aren't familiar with who you are and what you're up to, uh, what that is. Sure. Yeah, my, my story starts, you know, a, a long time ago, actually. Um, I, I think really a lot of my kind of um, strive to be entrepreneurial and, and build things and help people and have impact really uh, comes from probably my parents' story. You know, they, and for the most part, I think it stems from really taking chances and, and especially people that have been willing and able to take chances on me uh, mm -hmm. throughout my life. You know, it started with my parents taking a chance and leaving the then communist Poland and 
coming to the United States, um, hopefully for a better life in America, and then eventually taking a chance and starting a small flower business. And then eventually, you know, my grandparents taking even bigger, bigger chance and coming here and following suit, you know, various investors and that have been willing to take massive chances at investing in some of my crazy ideas over the years. And (laughs) the people that have been willing to take a chance on working with me to see them into fruition um, with really no guarantees of success, right? Yeah, so I, I really applaud and respect uh, everybody that I've worked with over the last decade or more. Uh, but I guess the kind of projects that I've come to be known for, um, one of them was was a bicycle lock that uh, basically explodes with noxious chemicals when a thief cuts it. And it sounds like a crazy idea. And, <laughs> and sounds like some out of Mission Impossible or something. Right? but it needed to be crazy it needed to be crazy because my goal with that company wasn't just solving the bike theft problem the the problem at its core was that every single bike lock company in the world was lying to people Mm. Um, they were actively hiding the fact that angle grinders these power tools can cut through any bike lock within seconds. They're advertising different kinds of steel and it really doesn't matter. I mean, the innovation on power tools far exceeded that of bicycle locks. Yeah. Who wants to solve a problem if it means less profit for them down the line, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but I, w- I wasn't particularly happy with this uh, situation. Uh, so my goal number one was to expose these companies. Because originally, you know, we could have easily put all the R&D into just building a better lock, uh, but we needed exposure, right? The number one thing was telling the story. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, if, if you do things a certain way, and that way is with, you know, the customer in mind uh, and good-heartedly, uh, it generally gets gets picked up by a lot of different uh, news publications and uh, people are willing to share your story. Uh, yeah. So we were able to accomplish that uh, quite well. And um, at this point, uh, I don't think anyone that's a cyclist that I know personally uh, is not familiar with what an angle grinder is. At least they're aware now if they use, you know, a crappy cheap lock for, for 20 or $30, they know that it can be cut within five seconds mm-hmm. where a few years ago, they they weren't aware of that. They weren't aware of the risks. Um, so through that, I kind of built a reputation for myself, I guess, um, where you know I I really like exposing companies that that are lying to people, that are not doing things um, for the benefit of their customers. They're doing things for the benefit of themselves. They're they don't their moral compass is not driven by doing the right thing. It's by purely profits. Um, so I, I really enjoy working on things that um, are trying to right the wrongs in many ways. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what really keeps me motivated. Uh, and Side Pocket, which is my, my newest venture, is kind of a continuation of that in many ways. Uh, it's the... 
there's so much misinformation in the wealth management industry and investment industry. Uh, there's so many lies being told by people that are, you know, financial advisors, even. Yeah. Uh, turns out the majority of people don't have a financial advisor. You know, I, I read a statistic a few years ago that said uh, roughly 99% of Americans that um, have investable capital do not have a financial advisor. And this seemed strange to me. Yeah. Uh, dug into it. And, and the truth is they missed out a bit of wording there. The, the truth is 99% of Americans with investable capital do not have a licensed financial advisor. <laughs> so they are getting financial advice from, as it turns out, that, that friend that they trust. Yeah. That okay. Was always good at math and money and, you know, uh, and, and they're a responsible person generally, but they're not a licensed financial okay. advisor. Right. So I found that really interesting. Uh, and I don't necessarily blame all of the misinformation uh, on the fact that most people aren't licensed because even licensed financial advisors spread misinformation. Right. A lot of the reason be behind that is because times have changed, right? Uh, virtually every single financial advisor, when you go and uh, you have an IRA or a 401k and or even a brokerage account, and, and you go to a financial advisor and you say, I want to invest my capital, um, they they use what's called uh, strategic asset allocation, which is derived from modern portfolio theory, which is um, a thesis of Harry Markowitz that I developed you know, over 60 or 70 years ago at this yeah. point. So the world has changed pretty fundamentally. A, a part of that theory was uh, basically that different asset classes uh, were not perfectly correlated, like let's say US equities and European equities. So if you add multiple different asset classes into a portfolio, uh, you will get the benefit of diversification. Diversification, right? Yeah. Diversification. As it turns out, uh, these days, due to globalization, uh, the correlation between, say, US and European equities uh, is significantly higher than it used to be, as you might imagine. Most mm -hmm. large corporations operate globally. Um, but during a black swan event, as it turns out, correlations approach nearly one. So right when you need diversification and that benefit and that protection the most, you don't have it, right? Everything collapses when things are collapsing. Mm -hmm. Right, we saw this during the pandemic. We saw this in 2022. Bonds were not a safe haven. Um, so some of the lies that are told are, you know, you can one being you can research a company enough, for example, and if you research it enough, you can pick the right ones, and then you can beat the market. Yeah, that's. And people reference Warren Buffett, and that's called broadly speaking value investing. Uh, as, you as it turns out, Warren Buffett really made most of his money doing private equity, and I, and I think that approach does still work if the company's not publicly traded. But mm -hmm. finding these mispricings and uh, is is just not really uh, viable anymore for a normal investor, and it requires a lot of time. Uh, and more importantly, the time horizon that you need in order to see the value of value investing is much longer than what most people are willing to wait. You know, they might wait a few years and if the stock hasn't popped yet, 
uh, they'll they'll sell it, you know, because they need to buy a house or they need to, you know, pay for medical expenses and so on. Um, so that's that's two kind of fallacies just right there. You know, the benefit of diversification uh, is is not sufficient if you uh, if you just buy different ETFs. Uh, you need an additional layer of um, uh, or signal, as they call it in the industry, of, of potentially market timing and, and tactical asset allocation in order to really uh, protect your downside and your drawdown. Uh, so, so I think the big thing that's been the big secret in the industry uh, is people have been told markets go up and down. And your portfolio will lose, you know, a significant percentage uh, at least once every 10 years, like what we've seen in 2022. On average, most people are down about 20 to 25 percent on their portfolio. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, so it, some some people, if they're investing in crypto, are down as much as 50 percent. Yeah. As it turns out, that relationship uh, is not linear between losses and the gains required just to break even. When you lose 50 percent. You need 100% gains just to break even. When you lose 20%, yeah. you need 25% gains just to break even. And it's not intuitive to most people. Um, and we're just told and are expected to accept that losses in a portfolio happen. And don't worry, you just wait them out and things will bounce back. But the truth is, those losses, even though they're paper losses, you don't sell the stocks, you don't sell the ETFs compounded over 20 or 30 years, your time horizon on a retirement portfolio uh, result in two or three times worse performance. It's the difference between you actually retiring at 67 yeah. or disappointed in, in where your portfolio is and it hasn't kept up with inflation and you have to work until you're 77 now. Uh, and that's, you know, we're on track for tens of millions of Americans being in a situation where they're going to, they're, they've been told that don't worry about it. Uh, you're going to get 7% per year over the next 30 years. Uh, and that's just not going to be enough. And it's probably not going to happen. I mean, we've been mm -hmm. in a very unique economic environment where there has been a significant amount of innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, interest rates for the most part have been incredibly low. Uh, and inflation for the most part has been fairly low. Uh, given the Fed printing this much capital. Yeah. Uh, the probability that we're going to be able to uh, do 7 to 8% on average in a classic 60-40 portfolio of stocks to bonds over the next 30 years, similarly to how we did in the last 30 years, is statistically zero. Hmm. And, and no one's talking about this. So. It, it's a pretty pretty big problem that I see, uh, and and everybody's kind of playing the same game, and nobody's really tackled the solution. Uh, everyone's going after the shiny objects like cryptocurrencies and yeah. SPACs and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, I I think it's more important to go after the where ninety nine percent of the capital is. So how did a side pocket come into that? What's what, to to help resolve every all of that that you were just talking about. Yeah, so side side pocket at its core is, is kind of a deep tech 
Um, a good analogy for deep tech is something that required that is a very difficult problem to solve that took many, many years of research and development. Google is a good proxy for it. Um, the best deep tech is where in the background, it's something incredibly hard to do and it's a very valuable thing to solve. But in the foreground, it seems pretty simple. You yeah. know, Google had a bunch of funny colored letters, Google and a single search bar. Yeah. You didn't have to know how page rank worked in the back end, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and which is incredibly, infinitely complex, uh, especially today. Uh, so Side Pocket is, is a deep tech uh, that essentially um, is a number of different algorithms and an algorithmic approach to investing that is designed specifically to protect your portfolio from drawdown or losses from the peak mm -hmm. to the bottom. So uh, the drawdown of the S&P 500 for 2022, for example, is 25%. Uh, with side pocket, uh, the goal is to limit that drawdown through more active rebalancing and actively um, looking at the market, applying statistical models to the market, uh, and then rebalancing on average monthly uh, to, to limit that loss to 5% maximum. It depends on which model you invest in. Sure. Uh, but the implications of that is, uh, side pocket is actually quite a bit in the positive on, on the year, but, uh, but the implication of that over the long term is really that just by reducing that, that loss uh, in a bear market or a drawdown uh, in 30 years, that's going to be hundreds of thousands or, mil or millions of dollars in, yeah. in some cases of more money in your retirement portfolio. Uh, so it has really, really meaningful implications. You don't have to take massive risks. This isn't about day trading and, and putting all your money on, on black at a roulette table, right? This isn't about maximizing gains. You don't have to return 20, 30, 40% per year on your portfolio. Uh, like hedge funds do. You just have to not lose money. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting kind of uh, paper that was written on this, uh, which effectively explored uh, three different scenarios. Uh, if you just held the market uh, for the last 30 years, if you were able to um, invest in the 10 best days in the market over the last 30 years, and if yeah. you were just able to avoid the 10 worst days. Which one do you think performed the best? Well, based on our conversation, I'm going to go with the 10 worst days. Absolutely right. So if you were just able to avoid the 10 worst days over the last 30 years, you would have uh, performed significantly better than any other portfolio out there. Yeah. Uh, which crazy. is crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That's very interesting. I love it. And yeah, I had, you know, most people would say, uh, what the 10 best days, right? Right. They would say yeah. the 10 best days. If I can get those wins, I'm in yeah. good shape. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. What, uh, so how do you go from bike locks to side pocket? That's, that's a great question. Um, I actually started my career in the hedge fund world. So I, you could say I'm a recovering hedge fund quant. So that was always my background uh, was in money, but 
you know, my parents being immigrants, I had really three options, you know, uh, doctor, lawyer, or, you know, financier, right? Uh, you have to make money and take care of the family. And uh, that's a immensely high priority uh, as a first generation immigrant. And that's kind of across the board seemed to be true for, for friends of mine in the same, same boat. Um, but I can't memorize things like, like you need for a lawyer. I don't like blood. So I picked the third option. Uh, I didn't end up staying in that world very long because um, frankly, I, it wasn't very fulfilling using my skills to make a small percentage of the population wealthier. That's already wealthy. Uh, so I wanted to build things. I wanted to have a little bit, you know, more impact. Uh, so I took the entrepreneurial route. Uh, and one of the other things I really loved doing was cycling and riding motorcycles, anything on wheels involving mm -hmm. adrenaline. I love it. Uh, so as soon as I, I've had a number of bikes stolen, okay. uh, so it was a very personal problem yeah. uh, for myself and uh, my co-founder. And uh, the final straw was really a friend of ours had his bike stolen broad daylight outside a supermarket. Uh, and he had at the time the best, strongest and most expensive bike lock on the market. Yeah. And because it was so exposed, somebody in the store actually did take pictures uh, of the theft. Okay. So we saw what he looked like uh, yeah. we, and we saw the tool. Yeah. And this was supposed to be unique German steel, right? <laughs> I didn't know German what makes, steel. makes steel different. Do they grow it in Germany or something? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, she said it took less than 10 seconds. Wow. Yeah. And this, you know, $5,000 bike disappeared forever. Ugh, yeah. Uh, and he went straight to the police, made a report, and they're like, this is like the 50th, 50th today, right? And basically, they said without saying it, we're not planning on doing anything about it. Mm. And he's like, but this is his face. This is a picture of him. Yeah. So it made it clear, one, bike lock companies are lying to people. And yeah. two... Uh, this is the lowest prior. We're on our own. Cyclists right. are on our own. This is the lowest possible priority for for police. It's yeah. not a murder. It's not a serious crime. It's a slap on the wrist. It, you don't even get jail time for that in San Francisco. Right. Um, so that was really a pivotal moment for me, and I realized, you know, it needs to be fixed. Uh, and at the minimum, we need to expose these these other companies and uh, and change how things are done. Uh, so so that was kind of the story of how I got into Skunk Lock, and mm -hmm. I explored various other things along the way. Yeah. But uh, that that was really a personal one for me. Sure. Yeah, I wondered. Yeah. Well, what is uh what's a moment for you? You know, kind of like a critical moment um fork in the road right and obviously you decided the way you you did which has you where you are today but had you you know made a different decision you could be in a very different place like i think there's a lot of people in those moments especially after the last couple of years and uh there's i think there's a lot of power or strength and hearing how others have have decided in those moments so you got a, something that comes to mind as i ask that yeah you know 
I remember this vividly too, because it was probably the, the most difficult decision in my life. And uh, I left the hedge fund world really early in my career. Uh, my parents don't really have a lot of wealth, so they can't really sustain me, <laughs> yeah. right? How, how some others might, might be fortunate, be in that fortunate situation. Um, but I really wanted to pursue a different path, an entrepreneurial path. It's just, I did it a little bit earlier than most entrepreneurs do. Uh, now that I'm also kind of an investor and also involved in other things on the venture capital side and uh, working with startups at various accelerators, I see all the data points. You know, I see thousands of startups a year and most founders are, you know, former Google, former Facebook, former Uber, and they've made a few million dollars already mm -hmm. uh, in equity. They're, they're not struggling when they start their first company, let's say. Uh, they don't need to pay themselves a salary. Um, they're not, they're not going to go hungry. They're not eat, even eating ramen. That's the vast yeah. majority of founders. Okay. That's the truth. Yeah. Um, so I made this, in hindsight, somewhat irresponsible decision to, <laughs> to try <laughs> to, you know, take up odd jobs, but spend most of my day trying to build, build things. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you can never kind of really understand the meaning of something until you really look back and see the outcome. But I, I see vividly how I approach companies, people, technology, innovation is fundamentally different because I had that experience as a bootstrapped struggling founder that had one meal a day and was sleeping on friends' couches, you know, for, yeah. for years um, than, than those that never had that real struggle. Uh, and it's, it's taught me some really unique things like how to, how to market things without a marketing budget. How do you, how do you get people behind your story without any money? Because everybody, Every consult marketing consultant that I talk to uh, talks to me about their experience and why they're qualified uh, to to work with any of my projects or any of my companies. And, and they they talk about their experience and they say, oh, at company X, I had a $12 million marketing budget. This is how I spent it. But they never talk, <laughs> uh, talk about how they would approach that same problem if they had a $0 marketing budget. Yeah. yeah. Right? And that's really the reality as a, as a startup founder, in most cases, you have $0. Yeah, right. And it makes me wonder how many founders who have great ideas, have great ability to build products, um, but do never learn how to really market it without a massive marketing budget. Because nobody yeah. is going to give you a massive venture round before you built the product and got some sort of traction, at right. least. Yeah. So. So it makes me wonder how how many products are really missing from society, and and that kind of makes me sad. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question too. Um, as we start to wrap this up, if there's one or two things that you know if, that like guiding principles, I guess, or items that uh, if the listener right now were to apply in their life, help move their life forward, what what that might be. Yeah, I, I think going back to my original thought um, 
and what has had kind of a pivotal impact on my life is is taking chances uh, and position yourself in a way where people want to take chances on you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether that's you know friends that end up helping you build companies or investors that invest in them or customers trying your minimal viable product. <laughs> yeah. Position yourself in a way where where people want to take that chance. And I learned this from my parents being florists. You know, when they came to pursue the American dream, for some reason, all the Polish people in San Francisco, their niche was flowers. Yeah. And what I learned about the flower business is that it has nothing to do with selling flowers and 100% to do with customer service and how you treat your customers. Yeah. People are people would come in and buy a couple flowers just to talk to my mom yeah. or talk to my dad about their problems. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. And that was such a pivot. Like every once in a while, I would I would joke with my friends and say, "Hey, we're actually in the mafia," uh, <laughs> because yeah. after after hours, a bunch of you know my mom's and my dad's friends would come by, and they were all bankers in downtown San Francisco. And there's just at like seven o'clock p.m., there's a bunch of guys drinking beer at a flower shop in suits. That's and awesome. my friend would would pass by every once in a while. He's like, "What's going on in there?" <laughs> <laughs> but but I learned, you know, it's all about how you treat people. Uh, and, and that's why every single company I start, I want a degree of empathy. And my number one goal is to have an open line of communication that we have nothing to hide in terms of what we're doing. Uh, because at, at the core, we're trying to do something that is going to better society, not just make us rich, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> three other corporations, yeah. um, and, and having incredible, you know, customer service. I think is, is just really important. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the people for sure. I think that's true in leadership as well. What's uh, what are a couple of ways that we can find out more about uh, what you're up to and in, in your new project side project uh, pocket. And uh, I don't know if you're on social media at all, or, you know, is there a way to follow you there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so side pocket is it's, it's just sidepocket.com. We we're fortunate enough to get the nice. doc. Yeah. Uh, and we are gearing up for a big launch in January. So we're going to be okay. accepting, you know, new clients and no more wait list, all that fun stuff. Awesome. Uh, That's so- exciting. Yeah. I hopped on and I, I, uh, I saw the wait list. So I was like, all right, so I'm on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to bringing this to people. I, I yeah. just wait have done it sooner because it would have saved trillions of dollars yeah yeah American capital. pretty incredible that, you, that you're doing it so uh excited for that i appreciate you being on the show and and uh as you're listening today if you want to hear more episodes with incredible guests just like daniel please stay right here and uh, listen in to the next episode appreciate you being here again daniel thank you so much thank you nate really appreciate the time <laughs>